Good morning. How's everybody? Good. Good to see you on this Father's Day. And on Father's Day, we are talking about divorce. All right? That just... It just happens here at Parkway on Mother's Day. We talked about incest, and on Father's Day, we talk about divorce. We just preach through books of the Bible, so you just kind of get what you get. So uh, 1 Corinthians 7, starting in verse 12. Uh, This will be a somewhat difficult uh, text. Two weeks ago, I got to teach on sex, and if you didn't hear my advice then, then you might have to hear my advice today as we talk about divorce and what this is going to look like. This is a difficult letter to receive. I don't know that if you've ever received a difficult letter, if you've ever gotten a letter and you read it and it's just difficult and it's painful. In talking to Jared Lawson, our pastoral resident this uh, last week, he actually told me about two painful letters that he had had to send in his life. One time when he was in elementary school, his art teacher was using one of those paper chopper things and his art teacher chopped off the end of his finger, okay? So the class decided to write get well soon cards for that teacher. And Jared drew a picture of a big old pair of scissors and the finger being cut off and blood everywhere. And that was his get well soon card to his teacher. During 9-11, after 9-11 happened, Jared decided he wanted to write an encouraging note to the president. So he wrote a card to George Bush that his mom mailed to the White House, and in that card it said, I'm glad you're my president, Psalm 23, and Jared drew a picture of a plane flying into a tower, okay? So I don't know if you've ever received a difficult letter, but it can hit you in different ways. Well, the book of 1 Corinthians is a very difficult letter, and we'll see that what he has to say today when it comes to the topic of divorce is also very difficult, especially within our culture. So let's pray for grace, and then we will jump in. Father, we come to you through the Son and by the Spirit, and we confess that marriage is your idea and we need wisdom, and yet you've not left us in the dark. You've not made us like the pagan nations in the Old Testament who sacrificed children to try to figure out the will of the gods, but rather you, the one God, have given us your word so that we can see in black and white what you have required. We thank you that you've given us your word, and more importantly, that Christ has come to fulfill it on our behalf because we cannot keep it. It's in his name and for his glory that we pray, amen. All right, before we jump into this text, we need to do a quick theology of divorce and remarriage. We have a whole theological equipping class on this. I encourage you to listen to that online, but we've got to do a quick theology of divorce and remarriage, and then we will get into the text. So we can kind of see a biblical pattern first and then figure out how this text fits into it. Let's look at it church history first. Throughout most of church history, divorce was just not allowed at all. In the Roman Catholic system of theology, marriage is not just this covenant, it's a sacrament. It's like baptism. And in the same way that you can't be unbaptized, you can't be unmarried. And so you don't really have, you have people getting divorced and remarried, but never with the approval, really, of the widespread Roman Catholic Church throughout most of church history, okay? So uh, today, here's what the Catholic Church does. They won't grant you a divorce, but they'll grant you an annulment, which is the same thing. Okay? So you're not like tricking God just because you changed the word. Uh, so they really do allow for divorce today. But anyway, that was the Roman Catholic view. The, the, the Protestant reformers bring a different view. The Protestant reformers, on the whole, agree that there are two and only two biblical grounds for divorce and therefore, subsequently, biblical grounds for remarriage. Okay? If you don't have biblical grounds for divorce, you don't have biblical grounds for remarriage. If you do have biblical grounds for divorce, you do have biblical grounds for remarriage. And those two, according to most of the Protestant reformers, were actual physical adultery, your spouse cheats on you, and actual divorce slash physical abandonment from your spouse. Those were the two criteria that most of the Protestants allowed. Now, not all of them held that view. Ulrich Zwingli, for example, thought that adultery was just one allowance for a divorce, but that there could be others. 
And then uh, the fiery Martin Bootser was the first one to allow divorce by mutual consent. What Bootser did is he saw in 1 Corinthians 7 how it says that we're to live at peace, and he said if you're not living at peace, well then maybe that's grounds for divorce. I don't agree with him there, but that's the view. The Puritans, okay, the Puritans. Now think of the Puritans. They're very legalistic. They're very conservative. No dancing, no playing cards, right? No laughing on a Sunday. These are the Puritans. They allowed divorce not only in the case of adultery, but some groups allowed divorce for the case of impotence, okay? Because, like I said a couple weeks ago, sex is not a part of your marriage, it is the central part of your marriage. So they thought if that wasn't happening, then you could also get divorced. Don't agree with them on that, but it is an interesting thing to note. Now, what does the Bible teach when it comes to a theology of divorce and remarriage? I'll just summarize it as much as I can. Divorce, in one sense, only happens because we live in a broken world. In one sense, all divorce is tragic because had mankind never fallen and rebelled, uh, you know, have we never, if we never fell from grace, that wouldn't have been an issue. People would have just been married and, and things would have been good. But because the world is broken, divorce is a reality. And biblically, there are only two grounds for divorce. Okay, so we're gonna talk about one in the text today in a second, but let me give you another one that's mentioned earlier on in the New Testament, Matthew 5, 31 through 32. Jesus speaking. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. We're gonna come back to that. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. In the Old Testament, God had allowed the Jews to give a certificate of divorce, not because that's what was best, but because of their hardness of hearts. But that wasn't the case for adultery. And adultery in the Old Testament, the penalty was death. Adultery in the Old Testament automatically broke up a marriage because your spouse would be killed if they cheated on you. And so when Jesus is asked about it, he says you don't get to divorce your spouse for any reason like you guys are doing, but he does give this exception for sexual immorality. Now notice this phrase here where he says, it makes her commit adultery. What on earth does that mean? If I unbiblically divorce my wife Katie, how have I made her commit adultery? And the idea is because she will get remarried. This is why we know that biblical divorce implies remarriage. The whole purpose of divorce is for remarriage. And so keep a note of that as well. Matthew 19, three through nine. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So I hold the traditional Protestant view that there's this case, this allowance for sexual immorality in marriage that would allow for biblical divorce and therefore biblical remarriage. And we're gonna see a second one in this text in just a second on the issue of abandonment. But before we get into the text, I wanna mention one more thing that people often ask when it comes to this topic. And they ask, what about abuse? Is abuse grounds for divorce in the Bible, okay? So if a man is beating his wife, or I've experienced this in ministry at another church where a woman was beating her husband, and I didn't know what to do with it because he was bigger than her. I'm like, just, just like put up your arms, right? Hold her head back while she swings. Give her a pickle jar she can't open. Do something. This is, shouldn't be this difficult, but it happens. But most often, it is a man beating a woman. What do we do in that case? Well, here's what you need to hear. The Bible does not allow divorce for the case of abuse. 
but you are allowed to get away from the abuse. Don't make a false dichotomy. The problem was not your marriage. Your marriage is good. The problem is the abuse. So here's what we do if we find out that there's a case of a man beating his wife. We first tell her, get away from him physically. Don't file for divorce. You don't have biblical grounds for that. Get away from him physically. Get the law involved. Call the cops. Do what you need to do to be safe. We're not saying that you have to stay there and keep getting beaten. But what we'll, so what we'll do is we'll separate them physically and then we will minister to each of them separately. We will have people minister to the guy. We will have people minister to the girl. And you know what happens when we do that? One of three things will happen. Either one of them will cheat and then you know what to do. Or one of them will abandon and divorce and then you know what to do. Or the best option is they repent and they're actually able to reconcile. And we see, we've seen that a bunch, okay? So it's a very encouraging thing. But abuse is not grounds for divorce. It is grounds, though, for getting away from the abuse so that you can be protected while we work on your marriage. Okay, I told you, not a lot of fun. Happy Father's Day, enjoy your buffalo wings or whatever. Verse 12, verses 12 through 13, he says this. Now let's get into the text. So we've seen adultery, and now we're gonna look at what is called abandonment. Let's take a look. To the rest, I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Let's look at the first part of verse 12. He says, to the rest, I say, I not the Lord. First of all, who are the rest here? He's already addressed single people and he's already addressed married people. That's all the people. Check it out. Raise your hand if you are not currently married. Raise your hand if you're currently married. All the people, okay? So who is he addressing when he says the rest? Here's what he's addressing. He's addressing a Christian married to a non-Christian. Previously, he dealt with singles, and previously, he dealt with Christian marriages. Now he's dealing with, meaning we're both are Christians. Now he's dealing with the issue of a Christian married to a non-Christian. So if this is you, this is a sermon that you should hear. This will be very practical and helpful for you. Now, how does this happen? How does it come to be that a Christian who has one worldview marries a non-Christian of an entirely different worldview? There are only three ways that this happens, three and only three ways. The first is that two lost people get married and then one of them becomes a Christian, okay? That maybe that's your story. Two lost people get married and one of them, but not the other one, becomes a Christian. This causes a lot of division and it caused a lot of division in the ancient world. In the ancient world, when Paul is writing, typically a wife would take the religion of her husband. The philosopher Plutarch, in a famous work called Advice to Bride and Groom, says this. Again, this will be a little bit offensive to our sensibilities today. Not everybody was as uh, enlightened as we are today. A wife ought not to make friends of her own, but enjoy her husband's friends in common with him. The gods are the first and most important friends. Wherefore, it is becoming for a wife to worship and to know only the gods of her hus- that her husband believes in, and to shut the front door tight upon all queer rituals and outlandish superstitions. For with no god do stealthily and secret rites performed by a woman find any favor. Okay? So you can imagine as Paul's writing, you have a woman who might be a Christian and she has a pagan husband, or vice versa, he'll mention both. It would be very difficult. This would cause a lot of conflict in the home, even more so probably than it would today. Now, the second way that a Christian comes to marry a non-Christian is this, that a Christian marries someone who seems to clearly be a believer, but over time, they show that their conversion is false, okay? So there are couples where the husband and the wife, they really seem really solid. They seem like they love Jesus, and for years, they've walked in obedience, and 10 years into the marriage, one of them just says, forget it. I don't believe in this Jesus thing. I don't believe any of this thing, et cetera. And then you have a believer married to a non-believer, That person did not lose their salvation, they just merely never had it to begin with, 
okay? So on these two circumstances that I just gave, that's not your fault. There's nothing you can do about that. If you just get married and you're lost and all of a sudden one of you gets saved, you can't do anything about that. If you marry someone who you really think is a believer and they show later on that they're not, there's nothing you can do about it. But the third one, you can do something about, and this is most often how a Christian comes to marry a non-Christian, and it's a decision that they make. The third one is this, a Christian marries someone who's not a Christian either knowingly or by downplaying warning signs, okay? So you will see this a lot. If there are red flags, if you are someone who is single or you are dating, okay, and all your friends keep saying, I have concerns about your boyfriend or girlfriend, you should listen to them, but I'll change him, Right? But, but, but I've seen him read his Bible once. There's times that he doesn't curse, whatever it is. That's not what we're looking for. What you're looking for is someone who's super godly. You're not trying to get the bare minimum. You're trying to find somebody who is super godly. And so the Bible will tell you, if you're already single, do not enter into a marriage covenant with somebody who's lost. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 15. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has darkness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? That's another name for Satan. Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? So it's saying, the Bible's gonna say, if you're already single and you're not married, if you're already married, you have to stay there. We'll see that in a second. But if you're not married, don't enter into this covenant with this person that has all these warning signs because it will ruin your life. I know, ladies, that he has a sweet set of abs now, but when you're crying in my office, we're gonna read 1 Corinthians 7 together. Okay, because it's difficult. Now, why does he say, why do, what does he mean when he says, I say, I not the Lord? Jeff talked about this last week. Let me just clarify, because I think he's absolutely right. This is not Paul saying, here's some advice you can throw away. Okay, that's not what he's saying. Here's what he's saying. When Paul says, this is what I'm about to say, I not the Lord, he's not saying you don't have to listen to it or it's not scripture. Everything we're gonna see in this text is God's word and it is scripture and it is therefore a command. What Paul is saying is that you can't open your Bible to Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John and see that Jesus talked about what to do when you're married to a lost person and then try to leave you, et cetera. Jesus just didn't talk about it. So he's not saying, don't put Jesus and Paul in a cage match together. Okay? He's not saying what I'm saying is not scripture, you don't have to follow it. He's saying, on some areas when it comes to marriage, we can see what Jesus taught in his earthly ministry. But in other areas, he didn't talk about this topic, and so Paul now, as an apostle, is giving his authoritative word. This is one of the reasons why I don't love red letter Bibles, okay, that tries to put all the words of Christ in red. There's nothing wrong with those. Don't throw out your Bible. If you've got one, you can keep it. The problem is, in a sense, all the words are red. The same Holy Spirit that's inspiring Christ is the same Holy Spirit that's inspiring Paul, and so all of it is equally God's word. There's a tendency sometimes to think Jesus' words are somehow more powerful than Paul's. They're all God's word, and so they are all commands. Let's look what he says. That if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Now, I want you to notice a few phrases here. Notice these phrases, any brother and any woman or any wife. Here's why I say this. This is universal advice, okay? Your experience or how toxic your marriage is does not negate this. This is covering everything. God already knows all the terrible marriages that will ever happen when he has scripture being written. And this is God's universal advice. Usually because our hearts are sinful and we're trying to wiggle out of a marriage we don't want to be in, we will try to say, well, my experience is unique. By using the phrase any, he's trying to get rid of this unique experience, okay? Second thing I want you to see 
you don't get to divorce your spouse just because they're an unbeliever. Do you, do you know how many times I've heard in ministry where somebody divorces their spouse and here's what they say, I was unequally yoked. I was unequally yoked. Let me be very clear. Let me just say it as clearly as I can. Ready? If a woman has a husband who is unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him, okay? Uh, and so I, you, you need to see that the Bible is going to say very clearly, don't enter into a marriage with a lost person if you're a Christian. But once you are in that marriage, you must stay in it. God doesn't want you to get unequally yoked. Once you're unequally yoked, he wants you to stay there. The Bible could not be clearer on this point. You never get to divorce your spouse simply because you're unequally yoked. Keep that in mind. Paul's very clear. He speaks both to the husband and to the wife on this issue, okay? Your marriage, you need to remember, is still a sacred institution. You're still really married. Carl sent me a funny meme that kind of shows what our culture thinks about marriage, and it's a guy taking a knee with a ring, and he's proposing to his girlfriend, and he says this, with this shiny rock harvested from the guts of the earth by a child at gunpoint, will you sign a government contract with me that you can get out of any time? And she says, yes, yes, a thousand times yes, right? That's how our culture views marriage. It's this trivial thing, but in the Bible, it's sacred even when you're married to an unbeliever. Okay, so you need to hear this. If you are someone in here and you are married to an unbeliever, you need to know that you are still fully married. Your marriage is still holy. Your marriage is still sanctified to an extent. We'll see this in a second. You need to know that you are to still love your spouse. You are to be intimate with your spouse. You're to raise kids with your spouse. You're to have a good life with your spouse. You're still really married. I think there's this tendency for uh, people that are married to a lost person to think, I don't really love this person because they're not a Christian, so I'll just live a miserable life until I die, okay? That is not at all what you're called to do. Rather, you are called to be faithful. You still have a real marriage. This is what makes a marriage to a lost person different than, for example, a gay wedding or a gay marriage, okay? There's no such thing as a gay marriage logically or biblically. There's no such thing as a gay wedding. There's only a celebration of sin, but there's no actual marriage. There's no actual wedding that's happening, okay? And so you need to keep in mind there's no actual marriage there. This is why Carl Truman, the theologian, says that if you, uh, what Christians should do is they beca should become lawyers who specialize in gay divorce. Because there is no such thing as gay divorce because there's no such thing as gay marriage. He said you'd be doing the Lord's work and you'd make a ton of money, okay? So a gay marriage is not a real marriage, but listen, a Christian and a non-Christian are not supposed to get married, but once they get married, they're really and truly married. My mar I'm a Christian, my wife's a Christian. Our marriage is just as real as your marriage if you're married to someone who's not a Christian. So don't think that just because somebody's lost that you're married to, you don't have a real marriage. Love your spouse, laugh with your spouse, be intimate with your spouse, enjoy them despite the fact that they're lost because God still sees your marriage as holy. Now, what people will do in this text when we talk about abandonment is they will do something that is very crafty and very sly. They will start adding words before adultery or start adding words before abandonment to make them metaphorical. So what they'll say is, I don't have grounds for divorce because they haven't physically cheated on me, but they emotionally cheated on me. They didn't physically abandon me. They spiritually abandoned me. He's talking about being married to a lost person. Of course they've spiritually abandoned you. You started there. Or they've emotionally abandoned me. Stop making the Bible's commands metaphorical, okay? Imagine that someone came up to me and they say, Zach, I've been raped. And I say, that's so terrible. I'm so sorry that happened. Can you tell me what happened? And they say, well, it wasn't physical. I was emotionally raped. I would say, stop using that powerful word 
and then attaching emotional in front of it to get a reaction. That's what our culture does. The Bible allows for divorce for actual physical adultery, actual physical abandonment. And what people will do is they'll say, my spouse emotionally abandoned me or socially abandoned me or spiritually cheated on me, emotionally abused me. We already saw that abuse isn't grounds for divorce, so neither is emotional abuse. As Jeff Ashley wisely quipped earlier in the week, if your spouse metaphorically abandoned you, then you can only metaphorically divorce them, okay? And so keep in mind, when the text says here, look at this phrase, consents to live with. If he consents to live with her or she consents to live with him, consents to live with means they're not divorcing you. I've seen a lot of people file for divorce and they say, my spouse has abandoned the marriage. And I say, do they still live in your house? Yeah. Do they file for divorce? No. Then they're consenting to live with you and you don't have biblical grounds for divorce. Now, I realize this is hard, difficult advice, but you need to keep in mind, if this is you, you're in a difficult marriage or something like that, please keep in mind, all of God's commands are ultimately for your good. Even though you're going through a season that hurts, God is using it to sanctify you. I'll give you a little story. You know how my dad learned how to play baseball? My dad played baseball. He grew up in Weatherford, Texas, and he had a coach that would sit in the dugout with a BB gun. And anytime somebody on that team missed a grounder, you got shot. You strike out looking, you get shot. You drop a fly ball, you get shot, okay? No participation trophies back then. It was, an, it was another day, okay? Now, should that coach be shooting the kids? No, that's not what I'm, I'm advocating. I kind of like that, but no, okay? No, he shouldn't. But their baseball team ended up being pretty dang good. They almost went to the Little League World Series, okay? God will use something that somebody shouldn't be doing, something that's painful for your ultimate good, okay? The purpose of your marriage is not to make you happy, It is to sanctify you by making your life difficult so you have to find your joy in Christ because that's what brings you the most joy in the long run anyway. That's the purpose of that. Let's keep going, verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Let's look at verse 14. Let's start with the husband here or the wife, the the spouse. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Let's talk about what that doesn't and what it does mean. That does not mean made holy. That does not mean that they're a believer. It does not mean that if you're a Christian woman married to a pagan man, or you're a Christian man married to a pagan woman, that your spouse somehow gets saved by osmosis, okay? That's not the point. The entire Bible goes against that. The Bible's clear that you have to personally repent and put your faith in Jesus to be saved. You don't get in just because your spouse is saved. But even if you didn't know that theologically, look down at verse 16. It gives us a hint here. It says, for how do you know, wife, whether you'll save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So obviously verse 16 is saying that they can't already be saved because he's saying you don't know if they're gonna get saved. So it can't mean when it says that your spouse is holy that they're saved. What does it mean? Here's what it does mean. You are not defiled by being married or having sex with your lost spouse. You may feel that way. You may feel like because I'm married to a lost person, we're a house divided. Because I'm married to a lost person, I shouldn't have sex with them or I shouldn't be around them or I shouldn't enjoy them. We have a tainted marriage. We have a marriage that has somehow been polluted because I'm married to a lost person and the Bible is gonna say, no, 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 no. You still have a holy marriage in God's eyes, okay? You're married to a lost person, that will make things difficult, but your marriage is truly and equally valid. So you would see how Jews in the Old Testament, if you married somebody who wasn't a Jew, they thought that the whole marriage was polluted. And in the Corinthian world, where they're overly spiritual, 
We all know people that are kind of modern day Corinthians. They're like weirdly, overly, superstitiously spiritual. They're thinking, because I'm already so holy and I'm gonna be like the angels and so I'm not gonna have any sex or be married while I'm down here. They're doing all this weird stuff. You can see how they might think that if I'm married to a lost person, my marriage is polluted. Here's a great passage from a, uh, a work, a Jewish work, it's not in the Bible, called Joseph and Aseneth. And it's the story of Joseph you know that guy with that sweet coat in the Old Testament? And how he marries this Egyptian girl and he says this to her when she's a pagan. This is Joseph and Asenath 9, five through seven. It is not fitting for a man who worships God, who will bless with his mouth the living God and eat blessed bread of life and drink a blessed cup of immortality to kiss a foreign woman, meaning a non-Jew, who will bless with her mouth dead and dumb idols and eat from their table bread of strangulation and drink from their libation a cup of insidiousness, By the way, if you're looking for a good heavy metal band name, Cup of Insidiousness might be a good one. (laughs) Likewise, for a woman who worships God, it is not fitting to kiss a foreign man because this is an abomination before the Lord God. And so there's this tendency both in Judaism and for the church at Corinth to think, if I'm married to a lost person, my marriage is polluted. But here's what Paul is saying. This is what's really powerful. Actually, it works the other way. By having a Christian there, you actually sanctify and you make holy the marriage. Think about when Jesus cleanses the leper. And by the way, that's not leopard like my kids think it is, right? Like the big cat. He cleanses a leper of its spots, right? Typically in the Old Testament, if you were to touch someone with leprosy, you would become unclean. But what happens when Jesus touches the leper? The leper becomes clean. Jesus doesn't become unclean. The leper becomes clean. That's what you're doing in your marriage. By having at least one partner the husband or the wife, that is a Christian, it sanctifies and in a sense makes holy the marriage. You are protected spiritually and you bring a positive influence by staying in your marriage even if you're married to a lost person. I had a professor and uh, he was a guy who actually, he grew up Mormon and he got converted to real Christianity because Mormonism is a cult and so he devoted then his entire life to studying theology to fight false religion. So he was actually a professor that taught on cults and world religions and that kind of stuff because he had devoted his whole life to, to fighting false teaching. And so he would teach classes, I took him for a class in, in Islam, he would teach classes in uh, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses or whatever it is and he would always have guest speakers come up and speak. So in the Islam class I took, we had imams from other mosques that would come in and they would teach the class. It was a great education. And one semester he decided that he was gonna teach on the occult. He was gonna teach on Wicca and witchcraft and new age, okay? And he was having people that were witches, not like fly around on broom, but like uh, practice witchcraft, that he'd have them come and speak to the class. So there'd be like some lady checking in at the college and she's got on like a black cloak and like a strangled baby doll and you're like, I know why you're here. You're here to teach on witchcraft, aren't you? And now some of the students in the class, they were afraid. They're like, wait a second, aren't the sinnies gonna get me? Aren't the demons gonna jump off of them and attack me? And so he'd have to remind the class, you are a Christian. Greater is he who's in you than he who's in the world. You have nothing to fear because you are protected. It's the same way in your marriage. If one of you is a believer, the marriage as a whole is holy. John Calvin says this, The godliness of the one does more to sanctify or make holy, same word, the marriage than the ungodliness of the other to make it unclean. Accordingly, a believer can live with an unbeliever, not in the contracting of marriages, but in maintaining those already entered into with a clear conscience, okay? Now, what about your kids? Okay, so just to summarize, if you're married to a lost person, stay married, your marriage is still real, it's still holy because you're in it. What do we do when it comes to kids, though? 
the text is going to tell us, otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Now, let us again talk about what this does and doesn't mean. First of all, by saying your kids are holy, it does not mean that your kids are saved just because you're a Christian. As one of our elders, Wade Catlin, says, God has children but no grandchildren. You don't get in on the faith of your parents. So it's not saying that your children are saved simply because you're a believer. Additionally, it's not saying anything about infant baptism. My uh, Presbyterian and Reformed friends will be like, Zach, look how clearly the Bible says we should baptize infants who don't have faith. It says here that they're holy, like a lost unbelieving spouse is. Few problems with that line of reasoning. One, baptism is not mentioned anywhere in the text. Two, an unbelieving husband wouldn't let his kids be baptized. So if you're a pagan, you wouldn't let your kids be Christianized or baptized or christened uh, as a kid. Logically, then, you would have to baptize the unbelieving spouse. If you think because it says the children are holy, you should baptize them, though they, they have not consented, then you should also baptize your husband, you know, Nacho Libre style, against his consent. You should do that as well, okay? And also, listen to this. There is no being in covenant with Jesus that's not a saving covenant. This is different than the Old Testament. This is different than the Old Covenant. Though the New Covenant is primarily a repeat of what's old, there is something, in fact, new about it, a new wine that doesn't fit into old wineskins, and here's what it is. If you belong to Israel in the Old Testament, you could still be in covenant with God even if you weren't saved, okay? You could still be in covenant with God even if you weren't saved. That's why everyone took the mark of circumcision. All males, whether you moved to Israel or you were born in Israel, you didn't have to be saved to be in covenant with God. You had a general national covenant made with Israel, which was different than actually being regenerate and being saved. In the New Testament, it's not like this. You are not in covenant with Jesus unless you know Jesus. You are not in covenant with Jesus unless you have been regenerated. You know who you're in covenant with if you don't know Jesus? The devil, that's where you start. That's the one you're born into covenant with. And then you have to enter into a covenant with Jesus on the condition of faith. And so this is different. Every one of the promises of baptism is not true of an infant. It promises forgiveness of sin, not true of the infant. It promises that they have new life in Christ, not true of the infant. It promises that they've died to their old life. They've barely even lived their old life yet. They're so little. It promises that they'll be resurrected unto life. Literally, when you apply baptism to an unbelieving infant, it makes every one of God's promises in baptism make it where God is a liar. Every one of those is not true of that kid. So, rant about baptism over. What then does it mean? What does it mean? I think verse 16, again, is the key. Let's look at it again. For how do you know, wife, whether you will, look at that word, save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? What does it mean that your spouse or your kids are made holy? Here's what it means. Because there is a Christian in the home, you bring a spiritual blessing, primarily evangelism, that they can hear about Jesus that they wouldn't have apart from you. Okay? So, so think of all the benefits a kid has if at least one of his parents is a believer. He has somebody praying for him. He has somebody telling him about Jesus. He has somebody uh, teaching him a biblical worldview. He has someone taking him to church. He has someone teaching them about grace. All these benefits that if both of that kid's parents were lost, he wouldn't have. That's what he's saying, that there's this blessing by you being in the marriage. So here's what you need to hear. Sometimes you might be tempted to get divorced from your unbelieving spouse because you say, I want to protect my kids. I don't want my kids being with this bad influence because they're not a Christian. And the Bible would say, stay in that marriage. You are not doing your kids a favor by thinking that you'll somehow benefit them by divorcing them. If I may just share with you a little something out of my own life. So my parents divorced when I was a kid. The act 
the event that I most remember from my childhood is that divorce. When I think of my childhood, the first thing that comes to mind, not Christmas morning, it's not birthdays, it's not vacations, it's not playing catch with dad or playing a game with mom or anything like that. The primary thing I think of, the thing that first comes to my mind when I think of my childhood are parents yelling, police coming to the door, having to pack up to go with the other one. That's what I most remember. I am weird today because of that. I have trouble with relationships with people today because of that. I promise you, you are not doing your kids a benefit by divorcing your spouse because you think it will be better for the kids. The Bible says that your kids, in a sense, are blessed because of your positive influence in that family. Verse 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Let's look at the first part there. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. Now let's talk about what this does and doesn't mean. Jeff mentioned this last week and he's absolutely right. In the ancient world, to separate and to get divorced are the same thing, okay? When you send your spouse away, that is also the divorce. Why? They don't have cell phones. They don't have Zoom. They're not just gonna run into each other typically. So what happens is to separate, to be physically away from your spouse permanently and or to file for divorce, they're the same thing, okay? So what Paul is saying is stay in your marriage, stay in your marriage, stay in your marriage. What if that lost person leaves or files divorce on you? That's what he's dealing with. Not emotional abandonment or all these metaphorical things that the Bible's not meaning, but if they were to actually separate, they file divorce against, for divorce against you or you know, they say, hey, I'm going to the store and they just don't ever come back to actually abandon you. At that point, Paul is going to say that there's nothing you can do. Notice the phrase, let it be so. He's saying, in that instance, you're not required to fight tooth and nail to try to keep them married to you if they don't want to be. In Roman law, a woman could also divorce her husband. That wasn't the case in Jewish law. So when Paul's writing, either spouse can divorce either one, okay? And so he's saying, if that happens, that's not your fault. You don't have to fight tooth and nail to try to keep them in the marriage. Be open to reconciliation, yes. Try to not get divorced, yes. But if at the end of the day they say, forget you, don't talk to me, I'm pushing through with the divorce, there's nothing you can do, he's gonna say that the believer is not bound in such a case. A few things I want you to notice here. Notice, a Christian cannot initiate divorce on a faithful spouse who has not left them. Let me say that again. A Christian cannot initiate divorce on a faithful spouse who has not left them, even if their spouse is an unbeliever. So let me give a clarification here. There's a lot of confusion on this passage, even from pastors and scholars who should know better. They make a big logical mistake. Let me tell you what the mistake is. What some people will say is this. Jesus gives only one grounds for divorce, sexual immorality. Here, the apostle Paul, though, gives a second one because a new circumstance has arisen. So therefore, we today can give additional grounds for divorce. That's what a lot of people say. It's what a lot of churches, especially what a lot of megachurches teach. Jesus gave one exception. Paul gives another one. So therefore, we can perhaps give a third. Two big logical errors in that thinking. Number one, you're not an apostle. Even if that was true, and it's not, but even if that were true, you're not an apostle. When Paul is writing scripture, that is the word of God, that's different than your opinions and your experiences. But two, and this is the bigger one, this is the bigger logical fallacy, Paul is not giving you a new grounds for divorce. He's just saying what happens when your spouse abandons you. In a sense, there's only one ground for divorce, sexual immorality. Paul is just saying what happens if they just leave you? What do you do? And he's like, you know, in a very Jewish way, eh, what can you do, right? That's kind of what he's saying. There's nothing you can do. 
If they just wanna leave, you can't keep them married. So Paul is not adding a second ground in addition to Jesus, nor does it then give us the chance to add third and fourth and fifth grounds. He's simply addressing the issue of what do you do when the spouse leaves? And he says this, in such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace, okay? You don't have to fight tooth and nail to keep your spouse there if they don't wanna be married to you and you are abandoned by an unbeliever. Now, the text isn't gonna address what happens if you're abandoned by a believer, you know why the text isn't gonna address that? Because in Paul's mind, he's probably thinking, Christians, stay married. But because we're sinners and because we live in the real world, there are times where you might be abandoned by someone who claims to be a Christian. What do you do? I think the most natural reading of the text is to say this would also then apply to the person acting like an unbeliever, okay? What else can you do? If your spouse, who's a Christian, abandons you and divorces you and they marry someone else, what else can you do? You're free, there's nothing else you can do. This is actually why church discipline is important here. So we've had cases here at Parkway where somebody tries to unbiblically divorce their spouse and they file for divorce, abandonment, and they leave and that person, the innocent party of that marriage says, can I get remarried? And we say, yeah, do you know why? Because our whole church got together and said this person's probably not a believer. That's why we did church discipline. This person doesn't show that they know Jesus. And so that's why we do it. So the text doesn't say that explicitly, but I think it's probably a better case can be made than not that you would then also apply this to the, passage, or to the case of somebody who is acting like an unbeliever through their actions. Verse 16, for how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? You might have a false sense of guilt if your spouse abandons you. You might have a false sense of guilt if your spouse leaves you or divorces you. You might have a false sense of guilt that maybe you're trapped, that you can never get remarried or something like that again. And Paul is saying that is not the case. You don't have to just, if you're you're thinking, I need to fight my spouse tooth and nail to make sure they don't divorce me. Why, Zach? Because I need to share Jesus with them. I want them to get saved. He's saying there's no guarantee that you're gonna save your spouse. By the way, there's no guarantee that your influence is gonna save your kids either. There's no guarantee of that. This is why you shouldn't evangelize Mary, right? Where you're like, I know this person isn't a Christian, but when I'm around, they're gonna see how awesome I am and that's gonna make them love Jesus. You're gonna ruin your life. Do not evangelize Mary. It's not your job to try to witness to them at all costs when they're trying to get away from you. That's what Paul is saying. I've seen the same thing in several cases with, uh, with adultery, okay? So uh, by the way, do you think men or women cheat more? In my experience, it's actually been about 50-50. I wanna say men, because I know men and we're awful. But in my experience in pastoral ministry, it's actually been about 50-50. And on two separate occasions, one time when the guy cheated on the girl and another time when a different couple where the girl cheated on the guy, and I said, you have to break off your relationship with your mistress or with your, what is a male mistress called? Your mister? Mister. Break, (laughs) Break off your relationship with your mister or your mistress. At two separate occasions, people have said this to me, Zach, but then how will they hear about Jesus? And I said, probably not from you. I don't know that you have the best testimony and witness right now. God will send somebody else to minister to them. How about you not worry about it? And you worry about your real marriage, okay? So you don't, he's saying, this is not something that you have to carry. This is not something that is on your shoulders, okay? Now, let's get into some practical things. Let's get into some pastoral things here at the end. Okay, Zach, what does this look like practically? If you are a woman married to a lost husband, or you are a man married to a lost wife. Let me give you some advice from the Bible. Let's start with the women. First Peter three, one through two. Likewise, wives, 
be subject to your own husbands, listen to this, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Here's what the text is saying. If you're a woman married to a lost man, don't do nag evangelism, okay? Don't do that. Don't keep wearing him out when he says, I don't want you to talk to me about it anymore. Don't keep wearing him out. Look for opportunities to share the gospel, but at some point, this is the text is gonna say that you're supposed to win them over in a sense without a word. What are you called to do then? You are called to be the most godly, best wife you can be. You love him, you respect him, you submit to him as long as he's not asking you to actively sin. You be intimate with him, you raise kids with him, enjoy your lost spouse. They're still your spouse. Your marriage, in a sense, is still holy even though you're married to a lost person. It's just as holy as a fully Christian marriage, if you even wanna say it that way. So the way that you went over your spouse is not by like trying to, hiding a Bible in his food, right? He's like, what is this? That's not it. It's through by being the best godly wife you can be. Now, if you're a man, you're a husband, you're married to a woman who's not a Christian, the role is a little different for you because the Bible would command you to wash your wife with the water of the, the word. As the spiritual leader of your home, you have a little bit more of an onus to speak the gospel into her life but I would tell you the same thing. If your wife is not a Christian, you know what you should do? You should be the best husband you can be. Be gentle with her, be kind to her, engage with her emotionally, be intimate with her, raise kids with her, love her like Christ loves his whoring church. That's what you're called to do. So let me end with a few words to different people here in the crowd, the audience, the congregation, uh, of what this means for you, a few things. First of all, some of you in here, have been divorced, okay? That's a reality. That's the, the divorce rate among professing Christians is the same as among lost people. It's 53%, okay? By the way, fun fact, the, the divorce rate for second marriages, 80%. You would think that now that you had a chance to pick again, you'd know what you're looking for, but the problem was never your spouse, it was you, okay? The divorce rate, so let me say a few things. First of all, if you are someone who's been divorced and you were the innocent party, your spouse cheated on you, your spouse divorced or physically abandoned you, you don't need to carry any sense of guilt. You don't need to carry any sense of shame. You don't need to see yourself as somehow, uh, you know, somehow polluted by that act. You didn't do anything wrong. You might have done other things wrong in the marriage, we're all sinners, but that divorce proper was not your fault. Now, some of you are in here and you have been divorced for unbiblical reasons. Okay? You've been divorced for unbiblical reasons. Here's what you need to hear. You are forgiven in Christ. You don't need to carry this scarlet letter like a scarlet D for the rest of your life. You're not a divorced Christian in God's eyes, you're just a Christian. Don't wa- There's this weird stigma with people that have been divorced in churches, despite the fact that we believe that Jesus' blood covers our sins. So if that's you, you need to know God loves you, he's forgiven you, you're not a Christian with an asterisk near your name, you're just a Christian. Enjoy God's mercy and enjoy God's forgiveness, okay? If you have questions about remarriage, we're happy to talk to you about those depending on what's going on with your case. Now, some of you have divorced for unbiblical reasons and then got remarried, which you should have never done. But now that you're in that marriage, stay in it. Now that you're in that marriage, redeem it. Now that you're in that marriage, be the best husband or wife you can be. God's not asking you to get divorced again. He's asking you to to, to stay faithful to whoever your current spouse is. That's, the, that's your only spouse. Your current spouse is your only spouse. That's the only one that matters. Stay faithful to that one. Let me lastly give a word to those of you who are married to somebody who's not a Christian. 
okay? Jesus loves you. These commands are difficult, but they're for your good. They're for your joy. I know it's painful. I know it's difficult. I know that y'all have opposing worldviews. There's gonna be a lot of conflict when one of you is a Christian and one of you is not a Christian. As much conflict as there is light from darkness. And yet, God's gonna say, I'm still going to use it to sanctify you and he might even use it to save your spouse. He might even use it to save your spouse. There's no guarantee there. He's very clear in verse 16, there's no guarantee. But he does that sometimes. He does that sometimes. If you happen to be someone in here today who is that lost spouse, you're someone in here who today who either is not a Christian or you don't know if you're a Christian or you kind of come to church because your family makes you but you don't really love Jesus, here's what you need to hear. You have the opportunity this morning to not be in a mixed marriage, to not be in a marriage mixed believer and non-believer. You have an opportunity to be forgiven. You have an opportunity to become saved. What do I have to do, Zach, to be a Christian? I don't wanna go to hell. I don't wanna have such a worldview conflict with my wife. I don't wanna have all of that. What do I need to do? Do I need to clean up my life? No, you can't. Do I need to try to live holy? Well, God says holy is perfect, so good luck. Here's what you must do. You must bow the knee to King Jesus. He offers you a full pardon, not only for all the sins you've done, but for all the sins you'll ever do. And you don't have to do anything. It's a gift, it's free. Bow the knee and receive it. Ask Jesus to save you. Give him your life, repent of your sins, and he will transform you from the inside out. You have that opportunity today. If there's somebody, there are people in this room right now who are not Christians. There are people in this room right now who I don't think are Christians. Some of you think you're Christians, and I don't think you are, and I'm not gonna mention your name right now. That'd be real weird. But that's you. You need to really consider, do I know Jesus Because all these commands are super difficult, but they do become easier if you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. Let's pray as we prepare our hearts for communion. Almighty God, we thank you for this text, though it's difficult. I pray for those in here that are in difficult marriages. I pray that you would just redeem the marriage. I pray that you would open uh, their spouse's eyes, that they might see your word, that they might see the gospel, that they might turn and repent and accept your forgiveness. We confess that though marriage is difficult, these things make it even more difficult, and yet you love us. We look forward to the day where we won't have to deal with this anymore. Marriage is a temporary institution in the sense that uh, in heaven we will be neither married nor given in marriage. You've given us marriage in the meantime to do what you've called us to do, to subdue the earth for your glory. We pray in the meantime that you would be with those who are hurting, that you would be with those who have difficult marriages, that you would be with those who are struggling. I pray if there's anybody that needs to come chat with us that you would prompt their heart to do so. That if they are somehow being abused, that they would tell us or that they would tell the law enforcement agencies or they would tell somebody so that they can get help. Would you be with us? We love you, we thank you. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.